that pops up on the screen. And if there is, we'll just uh, we'll pause and we'll go to that. And you just give me the thumbs up there, Jake, if that's going to be happening or not. So I do have a few announcements for you before we get started. Um, so uh, welcome to Christmas at Conduit. We, if you remember, anyone here, was anyone here last year for Christmas? All right, so you may remember or you may have completely repressed the memory um, of how absolutely gaudy the Christmas decorations were here last year. And that was on purpose. We tried to go like way tinselly over the top because that was our theme for last year. But um, this year we're, we're celebrating a kind, kinder, more gentler Christmas uh, with just some tasteful decorations. But one of the things that we have out in the, um, out in the foyer is a white Christmas tree. And there's a basket with these little tags on there. And, um, and we tried to come up with, some, uh, we tried to come up with some, some fancy wording around that. Well, I should say Ellen tried to come up with some fancy wording around that. But that's going to be our prayer tree for the Christmas season. So it's like a partridge in a prayer tree. Um, so if any of you have a partridge, you want to throw it in that tree sometime... Uh, this Christmas season, that would be great. It could be a partridge in a prayer tree. Um, but there's these little tags in a basket next to, um, next to that tree out there. And so um, throughout the Christmas season, if you have something that you would like um, us to pray for or pray through um, with you or on behalf of you or for you, write it down on one of these little tags, right, and hang it on that tree. And then every Monday morning when we come in, um, the staff and I will pick up those tags and we will pray through those um, during staff meeting. You don't have to put your name on them. You can if you want to, um, but we will, we will commit to praying with you and through those things during um, the Christmas season and beyond, of course. But partridge in a prayer tree. All right, great idea, right? Is this thing on? No? Are you with me? Folks, are you with me this morning? Yeah, you're with me. All right. Thanks, Devin. All right. So there was another question, and we deal with this every winter here um, in western New York. So I thought we would just do uh, a general wide announcement is like, when would Conduit close church on a Sunday morning because of the weather? All right. It's always a good question. Um, so our official policy on closing church during the winter is if um, there has, if there's a travel ban in the city of Jamestown, okay, so if there is a ban on travel in the city of Jamestown, church will be closed on that Sunday. Any other time, church will be open, okay? So, um, so if, you're, if you're wondering, don't wonder any longer. I hear that we are ready for the video. We have a very special guest for you this morning, so here we go.
uh, yeah, you can give Jess a hand. Yeah, we, um, we, we did have to pay her uh, time and a half to wear that, uh, to wear those, those lights, but it was well worth it. And we'll have, um, of course, all of those dates and times will be on our social media, so if you don't follow there, you can follow there. And we'll have an actual card printout for you um, next week as well. So, um, would you uh, join me in a word of prayer as we jump into uh, where we're going to be during this Christmas season? Heavenly Father, uh, it is no secret to you that the Christmas season, the whole holiday season, can be just one um, giant rat race. Like race to this and race to that and pack as much into it as you possibly can. Lord, we, um, we love to celebrate and we love to have fun. Uh, but Father, uh, so many of us are just tired and we're weary, especially this time of year. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us to find a slower pace, that you would help us Lord, by your grace, to be more present with our family, um, with ourselves, and especially with you. Lord, um, may we just, may we discover, Lord, who you are in a new, refreshing, spirited way uh, this Advent and Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the, the, the Christmas season is wrought with excellent places to, pe- to preach from. And uh, of, uh, of course, all of the gospel accounts that record the nativity of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the events, right, following, uh, following the birth of Jesus. But there's also, you know, this large period of time, you know, everything essentially that we label B.C. or before Christ, um, where, where whole, literally whole civilizations and whole generations of people uh, wait in anticipation for the Messiah. Uh, I, I think that most people, most people here have had uh, an experience where maybe you or one of your kids, or a spouse, or something like that, got sick, like in the middle of the night. And you're up, and everything is dark, and the house is really quiet, and you feel just absolutely horrible, right? You just, and, and, and what, makes it, what makes it even worse is that it's dark out, and that you're all alone, and you're just kind of all alone, in your misery and there's nothing kind of worse than being sick alone at night especially when you can't sleep through it you know because it's kind of just like you're watching out the window for that like just the first peak of the sun to come up over the horizon and the sky turns from like black to like grayish and then reddish and then whitish and then like the day has started there's noise back in the house and there's almost like this this deep there's this deep sigh of relief and almost a like I don't know if it's psychosomatic feeling of oh I feel better now the world uh, the world is awake because there's there's always this there's always this sense that things are not right Things cannot start. Things cannot be healthy when it's all dark out, right? It's just a alone type of like wildernessy sickness type of place. And really, what this is is that way. Like when we're when we're laying on the couch at night, right, sick, waiting for the morning to come up. There's this sense of anticipation, both about wanting to feel better, but as the sun comes up. And everything getting light out, actually starting to feel better. We've been anticipating this moment of when the kids wake up and, uh, you know, the wife comes downstairs or whatever the case may be. 
You're like, oh, finally it's here. Like, I don't have to wait anymore for it to come. This awesome sense of anticipation. Maybe even a a better example of, of a time where we anticipate something coming in a way that really most people don't anticipate anything as much as they anticipate when you're pregnant, right? And uh, in, in Scripture even uses this metaphor of pregnancy to describe the anticipation that is felt, the anticipation that is present as the world awaits for Jesus' return. Pregnancy, it seems to me, now I've never been pregnant, um, but it seems to me to be the, like the ultimate exercise in waiting. You're just waiting. I mean, you're, you're seeing the evidence of something happening, right? As the baby grows and mom grows with her. Uh, but waiting for like the ultimate, ultimate fruition, the ultimate moment of labor beginning and the baby coming. And even in, the, even in those moments of labor where, uh, where it's really difficult and really hard, the whole atmosphere is charged with this anticipation and, and expectation of what is not there yet, but what is coming and what will appear on the scene in a moment. There's this anticipation. There's this waiting there's this like wanting to grasp towards that thing that is not yet arrived, but that there's all kinds of promise and evidence for it is almost, God bless you, it is almost like tactile, all right? I remember um, similar seasons of um, expectation. I think every kid um, probably has this in some regard. I remember as um, a, a young boy, maybe eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there, and we used to spend Christmases at my grandma's house, and I would sleep on this old pull-out couch in my grandfather's study. And I remember the smells, and I remember the things that he had hanging on the walls, and I remember the, the way the ceiling looked when you're sitting there, because no, no child actually sleeps on Christmas Eve, right? Like, and it's just like being sick on the couch. Like, I remember how difficult it used to be. My cousins all throughout the house, my aunts, my uncles, my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, you know. Like, the, the house just full, brimming with this anticip- anticipation and excitement. So much so that you, that you physically could not get to sleep. There was this sense of anticipation. Like, what is coming? What will be here soon? And of course, maybe what is the like, ultimate anticipation for people who live in western New York is the coming of spring, right? Because the season, the season of winter seems to be about 13 months long, right? And so that you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait until you see the first like daffodil, the first tulip, right? The first some other flower that comes up early that I don't know, right? Right? But you wait to see these, these, um, this new life, this new growth, and there's this, like, there's this, antici- there's this anticipation. Can't wait for it to get here. It's not here yet. It kind of starts, and then it stops, and it starts again, and it stops, and it starts again. And it's kind of like, I mean, I think you could make a pretty good case that almost all of life is just waiting for something else. It's just waiting for the next season. And, and sometimes, admittedly, we get so caught up waiting for and anticipating the next season that we don't really live in the present one at all, right? We're, we're, we're always looking for the next thing. And I, I, I do wonder how much, we, how much we miss by not being present in the moment that the Lord has us now. And when we talk about the seasons of life kind of like this. And most seasons that we talk about, we refer to them as like, man, this is a long, um, difficult, painful season of my life. I, I don't know if it's going to end, uh, or at least it feels like 
it's never going to end. It hurts. I want it to end. I kind of feel like that sickness on the couch thing. We're just consumed in darkness and misery. And all I need is one glimpse of the sun over the horizon to like well up in hope that, hey, this is going to be over now. Like the day is coming. Health is coming. I'm not going to be alone anymore. And I think all of us have seasons where we feel like we've been in this this perpetual state of darkness, misery, um, aloneness, isolation for quite a long time. And of course, those seasons of darkness always give way to seasons of light, always give way to seasons of blessing, always give way to um, seasons of favor. The, the difficulty or the friction there, kind of the rub in the whole, in the whole thing is that, is that we, don't, we don't always calculate. We can't always calculate the length of the season that we're in. We don't know when winter is going to be over. We may have a general idea. We don't know when that first flower is going to come up. But it's not like a hard stop and start to any season anyway, right? Like, like even when, when winter gives way to spring, it's not like you go to bed and there's snow on the ground and you wake up and all the flowers are out, right? There's a, there's a slow transition from one season of life to the next that, that isn't always as, as stop and start cut and dry as we, as we would like to make it. And so we're, we're forced to deal with this reality that we got one foot in the season that's coming and maybe one foot in the season that we've been living in just waiting for the opportunity to take the next step. And we get down the road a little bit before we can say, okay, spring is finally here. It's finally here. Uh, we live our life in this kind of dichotomy now in the church we um you know we say that this is you know we're we're celebrating the christmas season and we say that we're celebrating the christmas season because it just gets kind of confusing to say that well christmas actually doesn't start until december 25th and right now we're in the series of uh, in a season of advent and it just like it doesn't it just gets confusing right but but Understand something, right? That, that where we are right now, where we are as a people, where we are as a church, where we are as believers, is that the, the season before Christmas, or the, the time period leading up to Christmas, is the season that we typically or traditionally, traditionally have called the season of Advent. And Advent... Uh, the word Advent comes from a, a Latin word uh, that literally just means it's coming. It's coming. It's a, it's a, it's a season where anticipation is rooted firmly in all that we do. That, that, the, that the seeds of anticipation are, are planted down deep within the soil of all of our experiences and that our eyes now are not even focused on um, the, the, the reality that we are currently in, the present, but that we are, we are focused um, fully on what we are anticipating is going to happen on December 25th, the coming of Jesus. You see... You and I have the, the benefit of knowing the whole story already, right? Most people can tell you the story of no room at the inn, right? Born of a virgin Mary, no room at the inn. Jesus laid in uh, a manger, the, the, the nativity story, right? And, 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 and we... we we, we celebrate that, and we enjoy that, and it is something that we, that we come to, um, really, something that we come to love about our faith, that we can put, like, a, a mark or a stamp on, like, the, the, the genesis of the Christian faith. 
But we, re- we remember the whole story. But remember, um, there was, like, the story of Jesus happened within a specific place, a specific time, with specific circumstances, with a specific people. And I don't want to get, um, I don't want to get helplessly um, deep into the history of the Israelite nation as it pertains to Christmas and Advent, but for the benefit of where we're going today, um, what, what I think we need to understand is that um, when, when the Israelite nation was formed, right, when the Israelite nation came to, came to be, and this is like post Post, um, post Joseph, like we just got out of a Joseph series, right? And post Joseph, the 12 tribes of Israel, um, the 12 brothers of Joseph, or the 11 brothers of Joseph, down in Egypt, eventually Moses is birthed up out of that place, right? God says to Moses, Moses, go and tell Pharaoh that the Israelites need to be let go, um, because I, I have a land that has been promised for them, uh, that I want to rule them in my own land, under, um, under my, own, my own set of laws, under my own uh, theocratic, essentially, rule. And of course, we all have heard the Exodus story. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And we have the plagues, and then we have the Exodus, and the crossing of the Red Sea. And they finally, 40 years later, wander through the wilderness cross the Jordan River under Joshua's rule and begin to settle and conquer and take the promise that had long been given to them by God. But then as the nation of Israel was formed then throughout the next through a few centuries, um, the nation split and was attacked from the outside um, other warring nations around would come and try to take over the land that the Israelites had taken as part of the promise and then another people would come and then another people would come and then another people would come and, and the Israelites would, were continually suffering under the lack of good leadership, the lack of good unity and They would continually cry out to God, God, would you send someone to us to unify us as a nation, to unify us as a people, to give us a a leader and a ruler like, like everyone else has. We need someone to rally around, to to save us from constantly being attacked, constantly being ruled. Constantly being um, pushed in and out of this promised land that you have given to us. So, in comes the Lord, right? Um, And understand that we're trying to push like about 800 years of Israelite history into like five or six minutes, okay? Um, So, in comes the Lord and says to the Israelite people, I have a promise for you. I, I, I do have a promise for you. There is coming one, a person. There is coming a child, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, or Everlasting Father, Mighty God. Prince of Peace. God speaks to the Israelite people saying, look, you have been walking in darkness for all of these years. You are about to walk in the light. So where where I would like to be um, throughout this Advent or Christmas season is looking at what God told Isaiah the prophet about the coming of Jesus the Messiah. If you have um, a Bible, I would encourage you to open to Isaiah chapter 9. 
We'll have it up here on the screen for you. <clears throat> but at this point in um, at this point in Israel's history, they were being overrun by the Assyrian Empire. They were being pushed out of the Promised Land into um, into Babylon. So they're being exiled from their own homeland. And uh, they were, you know, kind of doing the proverbial look up at God and saying, hey, God, where, like, look, look, where are you in all of this? Because all, all that we are going through as a people is destruction. All we're doing is seeing our, our homeland, our promised land, torn down all around us. All we're doing is seeing everything that's important to us, our families split apart and and we don't need saving like, we don't need saving in a couple years. We need saving now. Like we need you to show up now. Where are you in this moment? And so um, through the prophet Isaiah, um, God speaks. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 is where we'll be reading. Isaiah says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he, or God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Verse 2, The people... Who have been walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Uh, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, O Lord, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar that has been across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child will be born. And to us, a son is given. And the government will be Upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah's, Isaiah's task given to him by the Lord was to remind and incite in the people trust, hope, and faith that the darkness that they had been walking in for so long would soon come to an end. That, that, even, it, like, that the, even the tools that were used to keep them oppressed and in darkness, the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, the warrior's boot, the garments rolled in blood. He says all of those things are destined for burning. They will only be fuel for the fire in the promise that God has for your future. So, so Isaiah says that this is the Lord's promise. Everything that brought you to this place of darkness will be destroyed. You will come under the promise of a son that I am sending. And not just any son, but a son that bears my own name. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be Mighty God. He will be an Everlasting Father. And he will be a Prince of Peace. And every government and every ruler and every nation will bow before his rule 
It wasn't some, hey, there's a hope for better things coming. It was a, hey, there is hope coming where everything that has kept us in darkness will be exposed by the light of the Lord. Everything is new. Not a single stone left unturned. All made new. Now, imagine a promise given like that. Imagine a promise where all of the darkness of your life reversed. Every, every, every stone that you're hiding pain under, that you're hiding shame under, that you're hiding disgrace under, that you're hiding the seasons of darkness and misery and, and isolation that you've, been, that you've been living and walking with, that, that the Lord says, all of that is going to change. All of that is going to be made new. I mean, like, for me, I'd be like, all right, tell me when. I'm waiting. Any second now. Keep it coming. Like, for real, right? Like, for real. Like, let's get to it. Because we are, I was talking about this in our foundations class this morning, we are naturally, like, an impatient people. Super impatient. Like I know, I, mean, I, I have patience for days. All right, um, someone, um, uh, I'm going to sneak into your house and just unplug your, um, your wireless router. Right? Y'all be throwing your phones across the room as soon as you don't have signal, right? right we're, we're not naturally a very patient people, is what I'm saying. We're, we're, we're naturally, like, we want it as quick as we can get it as soon as we can get it, and we want it now. And, I mean, I think that's just kind of the, the way that we are, you know. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit that the Lord has to develop in us throughout the process of sanctification. But listen, um, we still want those promises quick, and we want them now. And it, we, would not, we, would not, um, we would not say anything bad about the Israelite people who had continued to be under foreign rule and foreign oppression who when they got a promise of a new day coming of 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 the ruler coming that they would want it now they would want it now like when do you want things to change i want things to change yesterday that's when i want things to change when do you want to get out of this i want to get out of it two weeks ago when when do you want it new i want it new right now What is, what is amazing, um, and, and by amazing, I mean, if, if I'm but also character, is that the period of time between when Isaiah gave the people the prophecy of the Messiah Jesus coming, and when he actually came, was about 700 years. It was about 700 years. And so there is this reality, right, that the promise of God, the promises of God for us oftentimes have much greater purposes than even our own individual lives, right? You remember this point from the story of Joseph that we talked about last week, that even Joseph had enough perspective to understand that the overall purpose of him being um, sold into slavery into Egypt was not necessarily his own blessing or favor, but would be so that, so that his leadership over the seasons of famine and abundance would preserve a remnant, a generation of people then would then carry on the promises of God. And so, and so he, he was able to connect what God was doing and had done in his own life, not just to his own personal narrative, right, but to the narrative of God working in the whole of human history. And our impatience wants to see, right, the turnover of darkness and blessing and darkness and blessing in the here and the now sometimes forgetting, right, that the, 
that even the hurt done to us, the darkness that we are living in, right, that it won't necessarily even maybe provide um, freedom for us in this life, but it may provide freedom for our children. It may provide freedom for our spouses. It may provide freedom for those who we employ. It may provide freedom for just the person we're sitting next to this morning. But here um, maybe is uh, maybe one of the primary points to understanding like why in the world why in the world would the pro- would the would the gap between the promise and the fulfillment be so big? And how is that hopeful? H- how does that inspire hope? Like, because I want to be honest about my, I don't know about you, but I want to be honest about my faith, right? I want to be honest about my relationship with God. And I want to be like, man, God, that's a little discouraging. It's, it's a little discouraging that, that the, that the, that the gap, the distance between, um, like, my circumstance and the promise for deliverance seems, like, way far out there. And I'm not sure I can hack it that long. I'm not sure where, like, to keep my head in that moment. And, and I think that's a legitimate question. And I also don't think that it's a question that God is um, very scared of you to ask. Um, but... I think if I take a piece of hope from that, it's, it's this, is that, is that long, long before, long before I could even imagine the darkness that I would face, uh, God was preparing uh, to light the way out of it for me. Like long, long before, long before I had any conception of the, the darkness, the misery, the isolation, the depression, the anxiety, the anger, the, the loneliness, right? The fear, the anxiety, whatever it is. Long before I would even imagine or experience or be in the middle of that darkness, God was actively at work preparing to light the path out of it. That he goes, he goes before us. To light a path out of darkness. You see, um, the beginning of the prophecy here for the Messiah, Isaiah says this. He says in verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's interesting, there's one other place in Scripture that this is recorded, that that particular um, verse is recorded, and that's in the Gospel of Matthew. And the writer of the Gospel of Matthew uses this as a reference in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, to describe how Jesus comes on the scene. And right as Jesus begins to, he enters into his, the, the public phase of his ministry. It says, leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in, Caper- in Capernaum. And he was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 4. Land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That it was in the coming, it is in the coming of Jesus, it is in the presence of Jesus that every dark path, every dark room, Every piece of misery and loneliness and anxiety and stress, every bit of darkness is burned away by the light of the presence of Jesus. Jesus himself, uh, Jesus himself tells his followers in John chapter 8 verse 12, he says this, he says, I am 
the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That Jesus goes to light the way out of darkness, no matter how long we've been sitting in it. No matter how long we've been experiencing it, no matter how long the winter has seemed that Jesus holds the flowers of spring in his hands. He lights the path. And so when Isaiah comes to this amazing section where he begins to describe just who this promised Messiah is, he uses these incredible names to describe him. He says he is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is an everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. And let me tell you, we're, we're going to talk about all of these names over the, last, over the next couple weeks because there is such a dichotomy in the way that they are used, right? Because Isaiah portrays and communicates Jesus the Messiah or the Messiah, the promised one is coming as not just someone who is um, like strong and mighty and everlasting, but as someone who is tender, is gentle, is kind. Because Jesus both needs to be and is both in life. If you look simply, if you look even at the Gospels and the way that Jesus interacted with those around him, right? To those who came in humility, without any sense of pride or hypocrisy about their own spiritual walk or spiritual journey. They came to him as broken and humble. If I can only just touch the hem of the garment, I don't have to get close to him. I, I, I know I, if I could just touch the hem, coming in humility and gentleness, it is to those people that Jesus stops the busyness of the crowd around them, gets down eye to eye, and connects with them on a personal level, level with a tenderness and a kindness and a gentleness that we don't see anywhere else in all of human history. And then with those who would seek to use relation, their relationship with God, their own personal form of spirituality and abiding by the law to place heavy burdens and, and hypocrisy on the back of others. Jesus is not so tender. Jesus is tough. Jesus is what we would oftentimes even call harsh, maybe even mean. When he tells, when he calls Pharisees and Sadducees, you guys are just like a brood of vipers. You are whitewashed tombs. You are clean on the outside, but in the, on the inside, you are nothing but dry, dead, and decaying bones. You, you think you have it all figured out. You, you go across land and sea to make a single convert, and you turn him into twice the son of hell that you yourself are. Jesus is not like seeker-sensitive or very tender with people who he sees as leveraging the things of God on others for their own personal benefit. But with those who are humbly seeking, desiring that the Lord would touch them and heal them and be with them, Jesus shows almost unlimited grace, mercy, compassion, tenderness, and kindness. And Isaiah paints that same picture here of a wonderful counselor, but also a mighty God. As a prince of peace, but also a everlasting father. Describing that no matter what season of life that you find yourself in, in need of a tender, gentle embrace from a wonderful counselor or from a prince of peace, or whether you need slapped upside your head, 
few times to realize that the life that you are living is not God-honoring, that Jesus will be and can be both, that in Jesus Christ all things come to consummation. He is the fulfillment of every promise that the world needs, every promise that your soul needs. Um, I've done something in the last few months of my life that I'd never done in 37 years. Never done before. Um, I started seeing a counselor. I started seeing a therapist, right? Um, and uh, I, you know, were, was was. We're, we're blessed to be able to have access to um, Christian counselors, though, you know, those who counsel from a, uh, from a Christian perspective and to, um, and, and, and in all my life, right? And in 15 years of ministry, how many people that I have sat down and, and, and been on the other side of the table, been a, been a counselor for, um, worked through various issues, either in their marriage or their family or their personal life or whatever, I mean, you lose count, right? But never in my life have I sat down and said, you know, um, maybe I need someone too. And, and, and to be okay with that, right? And to say, well, this isn't antithetical to my walk with Jesus, right? Like, um, like this is kind of, you know, Jesus is Jesus and he is Lord of all. And, and Jim, my counselor, is just a, he's a counselor for crying out loud, you know? It's like... Let's not over-spiritualize the whole thing, right? Um, and so, I've gotten this different perspective on, um, on this term, wonderful counselor. Because uh, I went, uh, probably my first or second session with my counselor, um, and um, we were talking about like the expectations that you have in, in going to therapy and just talking through things. And I think one of my expectations, which I kind of tongue-in-cheek knew was unfair, was that, I mean, hey, I'm going to come in here, just I'm going to pay you for an hour to tell me everything that I'm doing wrong and everything that I need to do right, and then I'll leave and I'll go do it, and, and we'll just continue along that line. And so, Jim, if you could just come in and tell me what I'm doing wrong and then tell me what I need to do right, that would be great, right? Like, just really like, hey, I, I'm really busy, don't got a lot of time to talk through this, right? Um, let's just get it done. Um, and uh, he said a number of things that were helpful in that instance, but uh, probably one of, the, one of the first things that he said to me is like, look, I'm not going to do it, and you're not going to do it. We're going to do it together. I'm not going to fix you. You're not going to fix you. We're going to walk alongside each other, and we're going to allow Jesus to do the fixing. And so he saw his role as a counselor, which I appreciated, not as one who um, went ahead of me and kind of paved the way or went behind me and like was pushing me as I didn't want to go forward, but simply someone maybe just to come alongside and to link arms and be like, all right, well, let's just walk through these things together and we'll ask Jesus, like, well, Jesus, what do you need of me? What do you want of me? What do you desire of me? How can I serve you, please you, honor you, worship you? In this moment, Lord, please just show us. And I don't want to take that understanding of what a counselor is and impose it upon what the Scripture says. But, but all throughout Scripture we have, like this isn't the only place where, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, where God is, one of his names is counselor. Right? And the Trinitarian God throughout all of Scripture is, is, is named Counselor. Um, probably most notably in, uh, in the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 14, where Jesus tells his disciples that if he does not go back to heaven, right? If he does not ascend into heaven after the resurrection, that, that the Counselor will never come. That the, that the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit of God... Um, will never will never come if he's in heaven jesus is going to go back there he's going to send him down here it seems kind of like a um 
pretty sterile transaction of like Jesus is there, he's going to send him back down here and the Holy Spirit's going to live here. But the reality is, listen, is that, is that the, the Holy Spirit of God, right, who is called the counselor, the comforter, or the, the, the Greek word in the New Testament is the word um, paraclete, which means one who comes alongside. That the Holy Spirit of God, sent by Jesus, indwelling those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith, comes alongside of us, walks with us as a wonderful counselor. While we are uh, while we are in the while we are in the midst of the darkness of our lives, the counselor comes, the wonderful counselor links arms with us, maybe in a room or a relationship, right, or a season where we cannot see even six inches ahead of us and says, I'm here with you. Let me light the way. An incredibly tender and gentle picture of a God who is not content to drag us through something that we are unwilling to go through or push us into a place that we are not willing to go, although there are times where God will drag us kicking and screaming or push us even when we don't want to go, right? But there is also times where God in the comforting presence of his Holy Spirit simply comes alongside of us in the midst of our darkness and says, I am here with you. No need to be afraid. Allow me light the way. What what I have come to learn about myself lately, and what I have um, beginning to believe about the Lord, um, is that is that imagining Jesus the te- in his imagining Jesus being tender is a really hard image for me. Imagining imagining Jesus showing compassion and mercy. And gentleness to me is a really difficult thing. It's it's much easier for me to it's much easier for me to picture my relationship with Jesus as one of his toughness, right? His expectations, his um, his questions about what I'm doing or not doing, and in conversations with some of you all in my conversations throughout the course um, of ministry, I've found that that's not a very uncommon thing. That most of us hear, um, most of us hear the voice of God in our head as one of um, expectations, usually, usually unmet expectations, uh, fear, uh, anger, disdain like god is kind of just like putting up with me rather than um being joyful over me right as a father is joyful over his son and uh and so the image of god being jesus being tender in the midst of darkness or pain or ministry becomes really difficult not because it's not because it's on God, right? Not because it's something that he's actually portraying, but like that I'm beginning to realize that, that I don't know how to be like gentle and tender with myself. Like, I don't, I don't know how to have grace. I don't know how to have grace on me. I don't know how to, I don't know how to be kind to me. I don't, I don't, I don't know how necessarily to uh, allow the comforting 
presence of the wonderful counselor to come alongside of me in the midst of my brokenness and darkness because I'm being hard on myself in that moment. And so if I can't even extend gentleness and grace to myself, right, it's going to be impossible, impossible for me to believe that, that God in all his holiness and all his glory could possibly desire to wrap his arm around me, connect with me one-on-one and say, look, I'm, I'm here with you and it, is, and it is okay. And the darkness that is surrounding you, like you don't have to be, a, you don't have to be afraid, like I will light the way forward. Those walking in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus says, look, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so how could I possibly, how could Jesus possibly be gentle with me when I can't even be gentle with myself? And so I think the promise, of, the promise that Isaiah gives, right? The promise that Isaiah, um, like, that he, that he just, like, this is what God says. The, the, the promise of a wonderful counselor is the promise, promise of a Jesus. The promise of a Jesus who really does come alongside of us. The Jesus who desires to do life with us. The promise of a Jesus who enters into all of the darkness that we have, stands beside us, put his, puts his arm around us in our, like, in our humility and in our isolation and our lostness and says, like, I'll, I'll hold the lantern. Right? I, I will light the path. I, I will light the way. I am here with you. That's a promise, not just for the Israelite people. Like, that's a promise for you and I. Jesus wants to come alongside of you. Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't want to pull you kicking and screaming into relationship with, with him, nor, nor does he want to push you kicking and screaming into a future that you don't desire. Jesus desires to come alongside of you as a counselor, a comforter, a friend. That you would experience him in a gentle, gentle tender inviting way that you would be drawn by his love for you and that you would learn right because of his gentleness to be gentle with yourself perhaps the greatest example that um, perhaps the greatest example of God or of Jesus desiring to be uh, with us is um, is in the communion table. We've talked, uh, you know, we. I, I try not to let um, I try not to let this moment, this uh, communion moment, pass without a uh, you know brief explanation about why we take communion, what communion is and what communion isn't, who is allowed to take communion and who. Um, isn't isn't allowed to take communion. So if you will indulge me here for a moment, right? Um, much of our life, much of our lives, um, is defined through symbols, right? Um, we have, of course, for most of the Christian faith, right? The primary symbol of the Christian faith is what? The cross, right? And um, just the story of Joseph, it's kind of a repurposed symbol. Because when you look at the cross, what kind of feelings do you get? Oh, cross. Let's put three up by the side of the road. Right? Like, it's it's a warm, it's a heartwarming 
it brings instant recognition to the sacrifice that was made by Jesus, right? It's like it is it has f- familiar and and like it's a helpful symbol for us in the practice of our faith, right? But but understand that that God took a symbol, God took an instrument of death in the Roman Empire, right? Put his son on it and repurposed it for his glory. So even even the symbols that we have, right? When you if you were a, if you were a person who lived in the Roman Empire, when you saw a cross, all you saw was a symbol of execution and death. When we look at a cross, we see how God took something that man intended for harm and turned it into good, right? By repurposing it in the death of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, before he would go to be crucified, he went to have a meal with them. And, and so as was a customary meal, they would have things like bread and wine. And um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the bread. And then he broke the bread. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat of this bread, all of you. This is my body, which has been broken for you and for many. For the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus took a cup. And likewise, he gave thanks to his heavenly father for the cup. And then he gave the cup to his disciples. And he said, take and drink of this, all of you. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you and for many. For the forgiveness of your sins, do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus took two things that would have been extraordinarily familiar to those who were with him that night. Also extraordinarily familiar to you and I who are today. And he used them as images to encapsulate Right? Who he was, what he was going to do, and who he was going to do it for. That Jesus, um, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and then he gave it to his disciples, right? Because he, he knew that in the act of crucifixion that his body would be broken. That his blood would be shed. And it's no, um, it is no small coincidence that, that the disciples did not take the bread and the cup upon themselves, but that Jesus gave it to them as an offering. Uh, the scripture says, Jesus recounts in scripture that no, he said that no man takes my life for me or from me. I lay it down on my own account. That, that Jesus willfully laid down his life, the, the brokenness of his body, the shedding of, uh, of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So when we come to the communion table, every time we come, uh, we come in recognition that the, that the symbols that we are taking, that we are taking ourselves, uh, represent the body of Jesus Christ and blood of Jesus Christ and are meant in their very essence to help us recall by memory and exercise by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. I often get the question, who can come and take communion at the table? Um, If the body and blood of Jesus Christ was the offering of Jesus to God on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins, then the symbols of the bread and the cup that we have here today is available to anyone who would ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins. 
that, that the symbols as, as they exist right now were, were or, or as they existed in the body of Jesus were, were offered to God for the forgiveness of our sins. So if we celebrate the use of the symbols now, right, that the symbols now are offered to anyone who would desire to receive forgiveness of their sins through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That means you do not need to be a member of this church. You do not need to be a member of any church to receive communion with us this morning. You do not need to be a certain age, right? You do not need to be a certain spiritual maturity, right? If the forgiveness of through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ applies to you, then you can take it. And we come, we take uh, it by uh, a method called intinction, which means you come up, you're going to tear off a, uh, a piece of the loaf, you'll dip it in the cup, and you can take communion at that time. You're free to stay up and um, kneel and pray at the altar if you would like. If not, you can return to your to the outside aisles. We'll have you come through the center. If uh, you have uh, an intolerance to gluten products but would still like to take communion, uh, this side over here will have a gluten-free option for communion. So if you would like to do that, please just come on this side of the aisle. Um, uh, everyone else, you can pile in wherever, it, um, wherever you can. Um, and we will celebrate, remember and receive what God has offered to us in Jesus Christ over you, over us, as we get ready to receive. Heavenly Father, it is in Jesus Christ that we are forgiven. There is no other name in heaven or on earth under men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. It is through and in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and for the sins of the world. Lord, this is something that we could not do on our own. This is something that we could not provide. This is something that we could not manufacture, but we receive forgiveness, Lord, not based on our own holiness, but only as a gift given to us by Jesus Christ. And so we come, Lord, this morning to receive. Maybe we receive forgiveness, Lord, for the first time ever. Maybe, Lord, this morning is the first time we've ever had an experience of your forgiveness over us, Lord. Lord, may it rush like a mighty wind through our souls. But maybe, Lord, maybe, Lord, we have been to your communion table time and time and time and time and time again. And, Lord, although our eternity is certainly secure in the promise of Jesus Christ, we come once again saying, Lord, please forgive us. Let your body and your blood cleanse us from sin once again forgiving us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we come to your table receiving the gift of forgiveness once again. In Jesus' name, amen.